Uh, guests, I want to welcome you to Providence. We are a two-hour Sunday morning church, so just so you know. Um, most of you are like ready to probably bolt for the door at, a, at an hour and 20 minutes, but we're just getting revved up. So welcome to our family, though. We're glad that you are here. Um, Thirteen years ago, when my wife and I moved into the neighborhood, we put our kids into the local school called Cole Arts and Science Academy, which is where we met the great Gina Livingston, uh, who was our son's teacher. And uh, it was there that we just got immersed in the school. Remind you, like the church had no real way to support the founding team financially. We raised support from outside, but we weren't really good at that. So we had to actually go get jobs. And we ended up, Juan and I especially got jobs at Cole. Uh, I found a grant, and uh, we hired him as a truancy officer, and because that was the job we could make up for the grant. And uh, Juan started, you know, knocking on doors in the morning, making sure kids were at school. And I uh, joined the admin team there at the school, and the school was in dire shape. It was in its third turnaround. Eleven kids could write at grade level. Twenty-two percent could read at grade level. And uh, I just developed a huge burden for the school where my kids were attending that it actually would survive this time. And we were, we were making progress. We were building a staff. And then all of a sudden, these people started showing up at our building and measuring these classrooms. And we thought, who are these people in the, in the, in the building? We didn't even stop by the office to tell us who they were. Well, because our school was so poor on the performance scale, our school is only half full. So these new schools popping up were looking for space, and they wanted our third floor. But I knew that if we had a high-performing elementary school move into our third floor, parents would start sending their kids up there. We would lose our funding, $12,000 per kid, and we'd be restarting that school for the fourth time. I got really upset. And I got upset with the school system. I got upset with our superintendent. Um, but I got upset with God. God, we're trying to, trying to survive. These are my kids. Like... And these forces are stronger than we can hold back. Fast forward a couple years. Another situation came up where we, we now uh, found a philanthropist that, that would give a million dollars to our kids' school to help turn it around. And we were, now we had intervention teachers, and now we had the best books, and now we had all the things that you need to make a school great. And then the philanthropist and my principal got into a fight. And he pulled out. And I was like, oh, and I'm, I'm friends here and I'm friends here. And, uh, you know, one thing he did every year is he gave every single kid, all 600 kids, a, uh, a Christmas present. Well, when he pulled out, those stopped. And so now I realize all the families are actually blaming me for the kids not getting Christmas gifts that year. And it was, it was a horrible season. I didn't know if I was welcome in the school or not. Nobody knew which side I was on. And I just got angry. Got angry at the school system, got angry at the philanthropist, got angry at the principal, and I get, but I got angry at God, too. Why are you doing this? We started a prison aftercare program that you heard about this morning. And, you know, a year after Kurt walked into the building, our director relapsed. And by that time, it was the largest aftercare program in the state. 800 guys a year were coming through that aftercare program, and he no longer could function as the director and, you know, we're all working part-time jobs and trying to get a church off the ground, and now we've got this ministry and nobody to run it and very little funding. And I got mad. I got sad. I got, I got mad at the guy who relapsed. I got 
uh, mad at the system. I got mad at the drug dealers in the community that brought him down. I got mad at God. God, we're trying to do some good here. What are you, what are you doing? What are you, what are you up to, you know? John 11, I believe, has our answer. We're in this series on the signs. And to me, this is one of those signs that is uh, perhaps one of the most powerful signs that we've been going through here uh, in the book of John. And it's the story of Lazarus. Lazarus has died. We read to you the first uh, 17 verses there that kind of show the prelude. And if you have your Bibles, you can open up to that passage. I'll be referring to a few verses here as I move through it. But Lazarus dies, and by the time Jesus arrives on the scene, he's been dead for four days. Martha and Mary, who we've known all throughout the Gospels and kind of their journey, Martha is the first one to run to Jesus and basically says to Jesus, hey, Jesus, if you had been here on time, uh, our brother would not have died. Now, understand how, how deep this death was, right? This is not just a brother. It's a relational hit. It is a socioeconomic hit. He is probably the breadwinner of the home. So there is my, my dear friend, my brother, uh, the breadwinner of our home, has died, and you heal people, and if you'd have been here before he died, he'd have done it. And Jesus is like, he's, he's going to be okay. Yeah, I know, we, I know we're going to see him in the resurrection, Jesus. That's not enough for me. I, I don't really care much about the heaven talk. I mean, it's pretty brutal. But then, of course, Mary, you know, Mary's the one who sat at the feet of Jesus, right? She's the kind and compassionate and loving Mary. And she walks up to Jesus, and you know what she says? The exact same thing. If you had been here, our brother would not have died. And this sermon's personal for me. I've had a brother die. And I know what it feels like to be at that tomb. The very first church service this church ever had was the funeral of my brother. God, why? Why are you doing this? If we look at Mary and Martha and the surrounding um, people in the story, I would characterize them as living the average Christian life, the, the average life of the average believer that I believe is still existent today. And it's in my own soul. And I've, I've defined it as we believe in a God that we keep at arm's length, who is limited in his power, and who we want to execute our loser plans. That's the God we really believe in. Let me unpack that for you. We keep God at arm's length. We really want what he would... Because we're actually afraid if Jesus took the wheel what he would actually do and require of us. So we keep him at arm's length, but we also believe he's limited in power. Just think of Mary and Martha. They were basically saying, if you had been here, he would not be dead. We, we all know the end of this story, right? They, they had this limited view of God that he could only have acted if he had actually gotten there before their brother had died. God had to be on the scene to do the miracle. They had a limited view of God. And then they had a loser plan. Their plan was they wanted him healed so that he didn't die. Why was that a loser plan? Because God had actually something way bigger in store, way cooler, way greater. And it, was more, it had more to do with the whole world and the universe than just their brother. It involved all of creation. Amen. So what did they have? They had a God problem and they have a plan problem. 
What's their God problem? They have a very small view of him. And they have a plan problem. They've hacked out their plan of how they think life should work. Unless you cast too much judgment on them, you and I do the exact same thing. You actually have already written out your life plan. Oh, no, Jason, I haven't. Go find it in my journal. No, in your head, you have a life plan. It might sound something like this. I want a nice childhood with really great parents. Everyone's going to love each other. Then I'm going to go to college and graduate in a great career field. Then I'm meet the love of my life, and we're going to get married. We're both going to land great jobs in the city we love, and we're both ready. We'll maybe have some kids, and they're going to be great kids, by the way. The best education, the best health, the best fitness, because, of course, they have great parents. And we're going to go to a nice church. We're going to buy a home with cute little signs that say, home is where the heart is, and in this Pinterest font, hanged all through our living room. And we're going to live happily ever after. You got got a plan like that, right? (laughs) How many plans like that actually get executed? Zero. The plan you have in your head is not going to be your plan. It's your plan, but it's it's a loser plan. (laughs) Because it's not going to work. I'm just telling you that right now. God wants to know what it is because he's just going to start jacking with it. <laughs> we are shocked then. When, when things don't go according to our plan, we're shocked. God, I go to church. I actually tithe. I serve in the prison, you know. Why would you do that? And then we actually question him. Silently, we believe, believe in this like quid pro quo, like, I'm going to do this and then you're going to do this for me. When Jesus actually hears that Lazarus is sick, they actually tell him he is sick before he dies. They tell him he's sick. And you know what Jesus does? Absolutely nothing. He is not anxious to run and take care of our little boo-boos and our little plan that we want him to fix. And we believe we know how he should act. We want him to fit our plan. You know why? Because we have these little self-sovereignty issues. We are all control freaks. I want you to say out loud with me, I am a control freak. No, let's do it like AA. Say, my name is, and I'm a control freak. One, two, three. Turn to the person next to you and say, you are a control freak. Now turn to the person next to you and say, but I'm a worse control freak. We all think someone else is way more controlling than us, but you know what? We all have these self-sovereignty issues. You watch the news and you come up with this issue, right? How many times have you said and said, Oh my gosh, what a ridiculous elected official. He is so dumb. How many of you guys said, if I was president, you ever the if I was president conversation in your head? If I was president, I would do this. We actually say that. We think, you know, we have no political experience. We lost our high school class election in our freshman year. Our kids don't even totally understand what we're trying to say when we communicate to them, but you think you could be a better leader of the free world. (laughs) You realize how bad your control issues are? And we are upset when God doesn't conform to our will. We believe in Jesus. Oh, yeah, Jesus, we believe there's going to be a resurrection. We're going to see him in the last day. But God better pay attention to what I want right now. And then we blame him for the mess. You messed this thing up, God. We design these unrealistic pie-in-the-sky plans, and we want God to stamp them with his approval, and we get mad when he messes with it. That is the average Christian life. What is missing from that plan? 
reality. Our plans don't line up with God's plan because my plan is comfort. God says my plan is conformity to the image of Jesus. And when we write our little plans in our heads, we don't put suffering into it. But the number one way you're actually going to grow to be more like Christ is in the fellowship of his sufferings. Amen. Hardship. 1 Peter 4, don't be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice that you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. Job 23.10, he knows the way that I take, and when he has tried me, I shall come forth as gold. It is not a fun process for ore to become gold, right? That process is painful. So if you were just bartering with God on the menu of hardship, and you were up there to the counter, and you said, hey, God, and he gives you the whole list of stuff. He's like, you can't have that plan. you got to sprinkle some of this stuff in there. What are you going to order? Family difficulties, health problems, bankruptcy. I'm telling you already, even if you try doing it, you're going to jack it up. Because God's already got it mapped out for you. You might get hating the career field you were trained in and went to college for and be left in kind of despair. Maybe it's crippling school debt into your 40s. A surprise firing from a job. A marital eruption in year seven. One of you did something really bad. You have a learning disability with one of your kids. One of you develops a slight addiction. You have a psycho in-law. And your spouse only thinks that her dad is partially psycho, and you know he's totally psycho, right? <laughs> so you got the psycho, and you got to deal with the spouse. Oh, let's then throw in a two-year pandemic and put everyone's plans on pause for a while. You see, we, we are not going to have that conversation with God because we're going to constantly barter for none of that stuff. Can I just slip through my 70 to 80 years and just kind of coast into glory and sing hallelujah and praises to him? And Jesus says, no. You signed up for the wrong thing if you're thinking that. So I want to call you to change your beliefs, to move from this average, pathetic Christian life to believe in an up-and-close personal God who has unlimited power and an unbelievable plan. Let me unpack that for you. He's an up-and-close personal God. If you look in verses 33 to 38, you are going to see a picture of an emotional Jesus. And it is the most emotional picture we have of him in the entire scriptures. It says in verse 33, when he saw her weeping and the Jews had come with her weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. Then the famous verse, and Jesus wept. And then in 37, it says he was, or 38, he was deeply moved again. Now, I think it's a really poor translation. If you actually got down into the language, it is not like he was deeply moved, like he was sitting there and going, oh, I feel so sad. These words mean disgusted. The second one is perturbed. Jesus was angry. And he was deeply sad. What was he angry at? I, mean, I read all different beliefs on this this week. But I think there's several things he could have been angry at. None of us really know. But I think there was an anger at the whole 
system of evil in the world. He was angry at death. He was, as far as we know, staring at it from the first times in his life. And he was, he was just indignant at this temporary triumph of Satan and death in this family. But I think he was also angry at the unbelief. Here he had walked with all these people for all this time, and they still didn't get it. And he was an unrecognized power right in their midst. Deeply angry and then sad, and he just cried. And man, there's all kinds of opinions as to why he cried. But if Jesus was a real man, and Jesus cried, real men cry. Caveman Larson had his manhood party this week, and a bunch of us guys sat around a bonfire with him and gave him all of our wisely sage advice and stuff. And this conversation came up about, like, do real men cry? And I was waiting for everybody to go around the, you know, bonfire there to give their opinion, because I like, I cry at America's Got Talent. So it's like, you know, <laughs> everybody knows my vote already. But if he was the most real picture of manhood, and here he's crying, then real men cry. And, and I believe there's just, a, there's a genuine sadness when you walk onto the scene of a funeral. He was a man affected like you and I are. He was a man of sorrows acquainted with grief. Why is this important? Because he's not an out-of-touch God. That all, every funeral I go to, if you tap under the surface of the grief, there's anger. Anytime someone feels lost in their life, there is anger and there is sadness. And what we have here is the picture of our Jesus, who is not at arm's length for us, but in our pain, he is angry and, and sad with us. But then also, he has unlimited power. He has unlimited power. Lazarus has been dead for four days. In Jewish uh, rabbinic faith, they thought that for three days, a soul actually lingered in the body. But on the fourth day, it actually left permanently. So by the fourth day, everyone had lost hope of anything good happening to that person. And Jesus comes on the scene and says, roll the stone away. And, and, and they come in and they go, but he stinks. He's been in here for four days. I like what Tony Evans, the black preacher, says. He goes, he's the creator of the universe and you're going to lecture him on biology? But our logic is impeccable when we argue with Jesus, but we just don't really get it. And he cries out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. Max Lucado says in his book on this that Lazarus was probably at the corner of Starbucks in heaven, sipping his latte, having a conversation with Moses about a real firsthand event of the Exodus. And this call to heaven's like, Lazarus, you got to go back down. And I imagine he did not like those orders. But he has to go back down after four days in paradise and be bound in grave clothes. Jesus raises him from the dead. He had healed a bunch of people, but he had never done this. And why? Because this was a sign that when he did this, the, the death knell happened. The religious leaders, you read the rest of this passage, they are ticked. He is going to the cross when he does this. But he has unlimited power. Why would we ever limit him to simply healing? But then he also has an unbelievable plan. He has an unbelievable plan for our life. I'm going to try to advance that slide. That's not, there we go. I call this the resurrection Christian life. Not the average Christian life, the resurrection Christian life. Jesus has this unbelievable plan. And, and, uh, 
We don't know what the plan is, actually. That's why it's kind of unbelievable. You can't really believe in it. Because all we know about the plan are the broad strokes. The church is here. We're part of the church. We're going to, you know, do this journey with a bunch of people. There's going to be highs and lows. There's going to be wins. There's going to be losses. There's going to be deaths. There's going to be resurrections. And then all of a sudden he's going to come back and we're going to be with him in glory forever. That's kind of the broad strokes of what we know. And he's coming to renew all things. But we do know this. His plan is way better than ours. In all the actions he's making on the world, if you saw his map, make complete sense. And he's always doing something greater than our imagination. So, so what do I do with my plan in my head, Pastor Jason? I'm going to say, whatever you do, do it in really light pencil. You can't help yourself from doing it, right? You got to go to school. You got to go apply. You got to do something with your life, right? But I think your plans need to be very, very light pencil on all the things you want to do and achieve and become and all that. And I think it ought to look much more like maybe I just cultivate a bunch of deep relationships with people so that when I get the diagnosis from the doctor, there's a group of people to carry me through that. Maybe I, one of my plans is just to deepen my relationship with God. I can do that tomorrow morning, right, so that I am anchored in him and I really start to understand his mind. So when I'm in the hospital waiting room, like I am hearing those truths from God that produces a different waiting room person. His plan is better than yours, and, and when you actually see his plan, it blows your mind, he, but he wants you to walk by faith. Because you're not really believing in his plan. You're really believing in him. That he actually has the plan. I look back at the school. And I was so mad about these schools coming in and being in our building. And then my principal says, hey, why don't we just go pick our school? We're in elementary school. Let's go pick a middle school and high school. It's like, well, that's an idea. I was like, where do we go? She goes, let's go find the best. I said, where's the best? She said, it's DSSD Stapleton. I said, what's the address? I literally got in my car and I drove over there, talked to the, the <laughs> executive director and said, would you guys come to our campus? And I said, I'll give you free space at our school. And uh, if you come over and plant a campus in our neighborhood, I had no authority to promise space, by the way, from Denver Public Schools, but it sounded good in the sales presentation. And uh, he said, well, well, we'll think about it. Well, we just graduated our third class from that school in our neighborhood. And I look back and I go, whoa, <laughs> that's really cool. I mean, before that happened, one out of 10 kids in this neighborhood went off to four-year college. Now 100% of those graduates are accepted to four-year college. That's bigger than I could have asked or thought about, right? When the relapse happened in the prison aftercare program. I remember that conversation. Do we keep this thing going? And we kind of felt in our core like, we can't not keep it going. How do we duct tape this thing together? And folks, as of today, Cross Purpose has graduated 92 people with criminal records into careers, right? <laughs> when I look at the fact that the fight happened between these two people and the, the fa finances were pulled out, I was in despair. And I went back to the man who gave the money. There was $300,000 left, and he said, hey, uh, 
I talked to my attorney about how this funds was set up, and we c- I don't want to help that school anymore, but he said I could still give that money away and help the moms and dads. So, Jason, why don't you take that money and go help the moms and dads in the neighborhood get out of poverty? I said, I don't know how to do that. He's like, well, you got all these people coming through your church, you know. I'll give you the money. And that's how Cross Purpose started, folks. That's how it started. So God has this like way larger plan that when we live by faith, in the death, the resurrection actually happens. But I'm going to tell you this too. There are times when it doesn't. My brother died. He got hit by a car and for 14 years existed in a persistent vegetative state. I say often, you know, some things are worse than death. And a brother in a persistent vegetative state for 14 years is worse than death. I wish he died when he got hit. Because for 14 years you have the guilt of an unresponsive body in that bed that you don't know if you should visit or not, if it's doing any good. But at his funeral, I reflected on how good were those 14 years? I think 14 years changed my whole idea about quality of life. When anybody talks about quality of life, I about throw up in my mouth. Because I'm like, that whole conversation doesn't take into account those beautiful children that happen to be Down syndrome kids that have lightened up our lives. That people with uh, disabilities or differences or you name it, the Bible says that God said it is good for us that we've been afflicted, that we can learn his statues. Every time I visited my brother in the hospital, I was presented with my own priorities and what I thought about life and what I thought about humanity, and that was good for this man. And then 14 years proved Satan wrong because I believe he walked into the throne of heaven and said, hey, I want to touch Jason. I want to see if I touch him here with his best friend that he shared a bunk bed with his whole life that he went to college with, if he'll just cash in his chips. And after 14 years, pardon my French, I went like that to Satan. No way. And I stood at that funeral and saying, you did not win, Satan. You did not win. And it made me long for heaven. Because there is going to be a resurrection. I remember I had dreams for years of going to his hospital bed and him waking up and me sitting there and, and telling him all the things that were happening in my family and my kids being born and all that kind of stuff. And I wake up and realize he wasn't there. And to be able to do that in heaven, like I long for it. So I want to call us to believe in an up and close personal God that has unlimited power with an unbelievable plan. We believe in a God of resurrection. We believe in a God of resurrection. So when we believe in this God who can raise the dead, first of all, I want you to know the, 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 the resurrection of Lazarus was simply a precursor to what was coming. Amen. Lazarus was resurrected, but it would be a precursor to the resurrection of Jesus. This was, for Jesus, the beginning of the end. Isaiah 25, 8 says, He will swallow up death forever, and the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces. And the reproach of his people he'll take away from all the earth, for the Lord has spoken. So when Lazarus was resurrected, then it was Jesus is going to be resurrected, and then it's like all of his family is going to be resurrected. This was the beginning of that whole narrative. But it's also not just a precursor, it's a prototype. I believe 
that life, death, and resurrection is in the DNA of the universe. It is in the DNA of the universe that we as believers, we are going to walk through some death situations in our life. But because of the resurrection, we can have hope that we have a God of unlimited power who can resurrect the dead spaces. He can do it in a school. He can do it in a ministry. He can do it in your marriage, right? He can do it in, in, in people that have been through uh, incarceration. And what do we do? If this is the prototype, then we should walk in with hope. Peter calls it the, the hope that we have within us. Hope is actually a gift you give to another person. And, and, and as a believer, you can walk in and you can inject hope into any situation. Because when people lose hope, folks, it's over. If somebody believes that the story's not worth finishing, that there's no happy ending, they get depressed, suicidal, addicted, recidivism. If you don't believe in the resurrection, just send in the clowns, folks. The, the act is a mess. Just let's tell jokes. Victor Frankl was in Dachau. And Frankl, in his uh, great book, talked about bad hope and good hope. But he talked about people in the concentration camp the ones that said, we're going to get out, we're going to get liberated, and we're going to get out of here, those people all died. And the people that had no hope, they all died too. And as a therapist, he sat there and he looked at it and he realized the people that were actually making it were the ones who entertained small hopes of the next 24 hours, and it wasn't dependent upon another human being. So the baker, he just thought about making bread the next day. And the musician just wanted to play for the concentration camp choir the next day. And Frankl himself, he just wanted to actually do therapy one day and even maybe do it in the camp. They all survived. Can I tell you the, how much resurrection hope is even greater than that? Because you have a hope for the next day, but it is tied up in a person who's the God of the universe. So therefore, you can have this hope. We have resurrection hope for everybody as believers. So then lastly, it should be our posture. We ought to be cheerleaders of the resurrection wherever we go. Chaplains. Just think, there's 2,000 guys in that prison. And the guards are all there with their looks and their clubs. The bars are all there. And all of a sudden, this chaplain walks in. Who is he? Who is she? What are they doing here? Your very presence says somebody hopes about a future for that person. And can I say that's probably more powerful than about anything you do. Amen. Church, we should be the resurrection cheering section of the world. And why is this a comfort? Because when trials come, you know that God is working out his plan for the ultimate good of mankind. So this morning, what I'm asking you to do, change your beliefs, surrender your beliefs of a small God in the average Christian life, and start living this resurrected Christian life where you have a big God with unlimited power who's a resurrecting God who's up close and personal in your life. Let's pray. Dear God in heaven, may we live as resurrected beings with the hope that, Lord, you can take any situation and turn it around. Forgive us, God, for our judgment of you when you don't execute our loser plans the way we wish you would. 
So Lord, we want to lay down our plans, lay down our anger. And Lord, let you do a marvelous work in us. Lord, cultivate in this room a congregation of people that when they go through trials, they can actually sit there and relax with joy that you're doing some really deep work in your body. We ask this in your name. Amen.